Hi, this is Stephen Krein from Startup Health. I'm here with my good friend, Dan Sullivan, for our next episode of Free Zone Frontiers podcast. Hi, Dan. How are you doing, Steve? We've got a special treat today, and we had him on our last episode, and this is someone that you've known Probably, I'm just thinking of when you became conscious. You've known him. <laughs> you've known him close to 50 years. He's known me 51 years and three days yeah. <laughs> because I just turned 51 a couple days ago. So he's known me longer than I've been aware of him. He's my second cousin. Our grandmothers are sisters. I'm excited to spend this next episode, like we did on our last one, talking to Howard Getson. Yeah, Howard Getson. I'm yeah. excited to be here. This is so much fun. Yeah, and Steve lives in Upper West Side, Manhattan, and Howard lives in Dallas, Texas. And the separation between those two cities is very symbolic. <laughs> and bigger than ever. Although North Dallas is kind of like New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we were just talking about before we jumped into the episode, we were talking about how certain people, whether it's parents or friends or others, kind of knew you at a certain point in your life, you know, that's always how they think about you. And I think it's an interesting topic, Dan. Can you kind of go back to what you were talking about, how, you know, your relationship with your parents and how they viewed you? And most importantly, that age comment you made about, you know, couldn't be older than. Yeah. First of all, I had great conversational relationships with both my father and mother. One is that I'm really interested in people's history you know, they were born in both in 1910. I was born in 44, so they already had four children by the time I came along. And so I'm a fifth child. And interestingly enough, they're both fifth children. So I'm fifth of seven, my mother's fifth of seven, and my father's fifth of nine. Looking back on it, it creates sort of like an easy understanding. If they didn't get it right for the other six, they got it right for me. And they gave me I found it, it was a very, very nurturing childhood. I was pretty happy. I was given a lot of freedom. But what I noticed after I left home, and I left, I graduated from high school on a Sunday, and I left home by the Wednesday. I had lined up a job in Washington, D.C. right after high school. We didn't have money. I grew up you know, it was a farm family, and we had enough, but we didn't have anything extra. So, and the other thing, college wasn't as big a thing in those days as it has become. But what I noticed, and this is the comment that triggered the idea for talking on this subject, Steve, was I noticed when I came home and I was 21 to visit, I was still 18. And then I noticed when I was 30 years old and I came home to visit, I was still 18. And I was never older than 18 in their eyes. And the only reality they had that they could talk to me about was what happened up until I left home at 18. So actually, Steve, you were out of the room. What really triggered this, that was the second derivative. What really started it was Dan was saying, it's so much easier to help somebody else with their problems than to do it yourself. And the reason is that you don't have the same hot buttons, the same limiting beliefs or the same certain patterns. Then we talked about, it's like when I talk with my mother, I become a 13-year-old boy. And if you met my mother, you would think that she was the sweetest person on the planet. But I've had these conversations and a word that she said triggers a thought that I had before. And so it's really hard for me to think openly or fully when I'm in there because I'm being defensive about all these things I don't want. 
But when I'm talking to you about your problems using a strategic coach framework, I don't have any of the head trash. I don't have any of that baggage. And it's so easy for me to say, what about this? What about that? Mm -hmm. Because everything's possible because I don't have to do it. (laughs) Yeah, there was an interesting, I want to call it documentary, but I don't know if you'd call it that on Hulu called In and of Itself. I don't know if either Mm -hmm. was a magician by the name of Derek Delgadio. And it was a one-man show talking about, and the punchline really is that who you are is different to every single person in your life and every single person you meet. So to me, you know, Howard, I, you know, look at you and my first inclination is, you know, our parents were best friends and first cousins and our grandmothers were sisters and I've got all this family stuff. And then I have this trigger. Oh yeah. And we're in strategic coach together every quarter and I have this thing and I know, and then associate artificial intelligence and all the hedge fund stuff you're doing. And then somebody else knows you from a different perspective. And so the culmination of all that is everyone's worldview of you kind of is one thing, but do you rise or go down to that relationship based on when that was? So for your mom explanation of being 13, college friends, you all of a sudden become a college kid again. How often we take on the personality of the people we're mirroring. Yeah. And frankly, if you're dealing with somebody that isn't using the same frameworks or tools, a lot of times they're resisting and they're focused on what they don't want or what they're afraid of. Whereas as an entrepreneur or somebody in coach, you're often using a tool that says, you know, this is what happened and this is what it makes possible. And this is what I'm going to do. And it's so far in that people are trying to put on the brakes. Whereas when you're in the right group of people, it's almost like putting fuel on the fire and it gets bigger and you start to communicate differently, collaborate differently, and you start to sync up or coordinate your thinking into higher levels of possibility. And it's amazing. And you get frustrated when you're having a conversation that you want to be that. And instead it's minimizing or diminishing or mitigating. And you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. So I got to notice because this is the 50th anniversary of my graduating from college. So one of my classmates has taken responsibility to kind of organize it for everyone else. He said, oh, this is great. Remember the great old days when we were, you know, in a very small college. We had a very small class. It was about 60 in the graduating class, St. John's. Great books college. Yeah. That's a great books college, yeah. But one of the things, right from the beginning, I was an outlier because I had had two years of university, and then I had a year of wandering, and then I had two years of the Army before I went to this college. So I was a 23-year-old freshman, and I had 16- and 17-year-old classmates, okay? So my main conversations were with the adults, with the faculty, the administrators, and the professors, they call them tutors, they're the professors. And so, you know, I didn't go to the Saturday night parties. You know, I'd go into Washington and go to a nice restaurant. So anyway, I was just thinking, I haven't responded, I'm not going to go, but responded. And I said, well, why would I be excited to go back and spend a weekend with people that I haven't had any thought of spending time with for the last 25 years. (laughs) I mean, wasn't there a reason why I didn't get in contact with any of them for the last 25 years? You know, so the whole point is, is it's kind of like a nostalgia trip. And my sense is that if you're really passionate about something that happened 50 years ago, maybe you didn't get over it. I hope 
the time you spent in four years, 50 years ago, wasn't the high point of your life. Yeah, actually, that's one of the biggest lessons that I've taken from strategic coach, even going back to what you simply called a long time ago, the bigger future. I actually still have my own version of that that started and it said, you know, 25 years from now, I'll be this old. And I tried to imagine, you know, how old will my kids be? I'll have grandkids by then. Where am I going to live? What kind of charitable things would I focus on? What kind of fun things would I do? And I thought about all these different things from 25 years in the future. Then I said, what's the midpoint between there and now? What do I think are things that could happen between then and then one year? And I've continually updated that last year as we've gone along. And I am dumbfounded by how accurate that bigger picture allowed it to be. But it's not because I was right back then. It's because when you're in motion, it's easy to course correct back to what you want as long as it's really what you want. Well, have you continually had your attention, you know, eyes only see, ears only hear, what your brain's looking for? Because you told your brain what to look for over the next 25 years. That's what your eyes picked up on and your ears picked up on. Yeah, well, a lot of that is because of strategic coach. But it's actually something that I'm really impressed with, Stephen. I have been so impressed over time by how well he uses the tools and how he's morphed them into his own tool that he uses to describe his business, not only externally to other people, but even internally with his own team. But you've had an incredibly consistent vision of what you want with Startup Health. I think it goes back to that, what you want. You want what you want unapologetically, not having to say because, right? Like not giving an excuse. And one of the things, and I think it was a big gravitational pull on my own business life in the first several years of Strategic Coach. You know, when I joined Strategic Coach, I had a growing internet company. I used a strategy circle to outline an IPO within 18 months of filling it out, which was the first 18 months of being in Strategic Coach, which I accomplished. And then after we went public and I sold it and I was, as Dan put it, you know, post a sale, I had a earn out and I stayed as little time as I could possibly handle there because I'm unemployable. But as I was embarking on what I wanted to do, I had a whole bunch of conditions that I created in the exercise called the results multiplier. And it was that exercise, I think you referenced it on the last episode, Howard, where you kind of evaluate what were the things that gave you the most amount of productivity and leverage in the last five or 10 years or whatever period of time you chose. And as a result of doing that exercise and reflecting on my experience of building webstakes and promotions.com, which was that internet company that I took public and sold, I almost knew I never wanted to create that kind of company again. I'm going to have a whole bunch of different kind of conditions that need to be met. Your next company was called Organized Wisdom, wasn't it? Yeah. The predecessor to Startup Health was called Organized Wisdom, which was my foray into a mission-driven business, which is what I decided to shift to. One of the things I realized I didn't have with my first company, which I now have with this company, is that we stand and are focused on a long-term mission to improve the health and well-being of everyone in the world through this idea of investing and supporting a global army of entrepreneurs who are collaborating to achieve moonshots. But that vision and the permission, I would say, 
that I was given. Uh, I'd like to say Dan gave the permission, but it was about giving me the permission to give myself and our team mm-hmm. the permission to dream big unapologetically, but do something that was going to be meaningful to me and us. And that might have meant and could still mean a whole bunch of things we're not going to do as a result of me being maniacally mission driven. And that, you know, I think was a framework that goes back to that results multiplier exercise, which is I'm building a company with this going forward. And that is now what I've manifested and we've manifested with Startup Health. But as I look at your business or even my business, I realize that what Strategic Coach really gave me was tools to help me language it in a way that I was able to communicate what I really wanted so that somebody else could give it to me. It's a way of asking for what you want and helping somebody give it to you. And it was the clarity that lets you communicate with your partner or your employees, where instead of looking at you as some crazy person who came back from a seminar with more and more things to distract them, they actually saw how it was making progress towards what they decided was important enough that they really wanted to work towards or have as a moving bigger future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steve, when I got the news, you know, you were in the workshop that you had sold. I've watched some real disasters happen when people, I mean, there's much bigger successes in the high tech world and everything like that, but that was a big, a really successful sellout that you did. And I said, now, I I hope this doesn't mean that he doesn't have a future bigger than what he's just pulled off, you know. And I always worry about entrepreneurs that way. And I was only 29, by the way, 30. I know you were 29. And what made me think of it, they're talking about the cryptocurrency exchanges now. There's been a lot of news about the cryptocurrency exchanges. And there's one called FTX. And the guy who started it lives in Hong Kong, and he's 29. He's worth a billion at 29, a billion dollars. And I said, he's got some big problems. You know, I was looking at it, and I said, because I had just read the week before in the Wall Street Journal, the last six months of Tony Shea, you know, like Tony Shea died. It looked like to me like it was a slow motion suicide his last six months. But anyway, I said, you know, here's a problem with him. I said, you know, he's kind of you know, because of his skill set and, you know, his sense of what's happening right now, he just got a big payout. He just got a big payout or he's worth this much, you know, stocks. I said, you know, will he ever have a future that's bigger than where he was when he was 29? That was one of my questions. And the other thing was, he just alerted about 10,000 people in the world to come and see him that he never wants to meet. He will never know for the rest of his life when people says, you know, I, I just want to be close to you and I, you know, I admire you so much. And he'll never know what's real <laughs> because the Tony Shea thing, he was 32, I think, when he sold his first company and then the payout from Amazon for the online shoe company was a billion. And he just fell apart. You could just tell, I mean, he kind of committed suicide. I think he had no future bigger than what he had already done. So, Dan, I want to bring it back to Strategic Coach for a second, because one of the things that I believe that Strategic Coach did for me as an entrepreneur, while in Strategic Coach, I went through a three-month period where my dad died, I sold my business, and I got divorced all within a three-month period. That could have been disaster, but it was probably one of the best things that happened. 
And the reason is that strategic coach has so many different tools that let you create a blank slate in Latin, a tabula rasa. And most of your tools are based on something you call VOTA, visualization, opposition, transformation, and action. So instead of only focusing on the positive edit, you're saying, let me think about the best, but also the worst. And what did I learn? And think about what I'm thinking and get the insights. But so many of the tools let you look at those situations and that great abundance and say, what do I really want? What did I learn from last time so that I can create an opportunity filter so I'm at least focusing in the right direction? Mm -hmm. Who are the people that I'm supposed to deal with versus, you know, you have a tool that lets you rank clients, you know, A, B, and C. And you realize that there's a huge difference between the A's and the C's. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't want the C's, but the C's should be dealt with by somebody lower in the company where it's a career upgrade, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Same with unique ability, where just because something's on my to-do list doesn't mean I'm supposed to do it. It's really a to-be-done list. And if I give it to the right person, they go, thank you. Whereas for me, it would be an ass whooping. And that's what Strategic Coach does is it's a sorting, weighing, and measuring system to figure out what's the stuff that I'm supposed to pay attention to and what's the raw material for somebody else so that they upgrade their life and their career. Yeah. Well, the thing that I've tried to capture is, and this was mentioned before, it seems to me that as I've experienced lots of people over a long time, that there's four levels of thinking among people. And there are people who their thinking is really about things, you know, and you know, people who are car nuts or they're, it's all observable things. And that's what all their thinking is about. And they talk about, I mean, when you get involved in a conversation with them, all you hear is about all their things or the things they want to have, or the things that they found out are better than the things they used to have, but it's all about things. And then there's other people. It's all about people. It's all about people. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg has really capitalized on the fact that, Most people, the only thing they think about and the only thing that actually motivates them is people, you know, so it's possible for them to have 500 friends, you know, that's really important. And there's a third level is people who think about thoughts, but they're not their thoughts. They spend their career writing about the thoughts of Thomas Aquinas or the thoughts of Thomas Wolfe. You know, and they have concerns about things. They have concerns about people, but mainly it's thoughts. I think that's kind of like 99% of the global population is accounted for in those first three ways of thinking. And then there's people who said, darn, you know, they're six or seven years old. And they say, darn, I can sit here for a half hour and watch myself thinking, you know, and I say, and this really, really interesting. I can think about this and I can think about this and Uh, It's very, really, man, I got my own movie theater inside my head. I've got my own thing. And that's really what I've noticed that entrepreneurs, not necessarily that they chose that, but because the other ways of thinking are just so not rewarding for them that they crash through into this first level of thinking. And they say, you know, if I can just get a handle on how I think about my thinking and I can see where I think badly and where I think really well, It'll be really good for me. So in AI, what you just described is metadata. And in a sense, if you have the same data and the same process as somebody else, it's almost impossible to have an edge. 
the way to really have an edge is to have new, better, more different information and a different process. And the thing that's so great about the strategic coach frameworks is that it really does prompt people who might not otherwise learn to think about their thinking to actually be productive thinking about their thinking. And it encourages them to build that muscle. And then it actually becomes an unconscious competence where it's just something that they do but it allows them to make decisions with a whole different set of information and a whole different set of processes. And it really is a strategic advantage that's sustainable and grows exponentially. Yeah, it's really interesting, the change in tool creation over, I would say, I've been really conscious of it since the COVID started. And that is at the law on the bottom, when I'm designing a sheet, I put in insights, decisions, actions down at the bottom of three. And I say, okay, now what's above the bottom? And whatever the thinking process at the bottom, I always say, oh, let's just take a minute and say how you thought about what you were thinking when you were doing that. You told in the last podcast that I'm kind of sneaky, that I tell them that it's above the top, but actually it's about the bottom. But then they go in and people say, well, do you want me to go through all the things? No, no, just your insights, just your insights. What insight did you get from doing the thinking exercise? So again, I use the productive output, the forms. And I think about how often I refer back to them or share them. In the beginning, I'm so proud of the stuff that's in the upper boxes. And I'm like, oh my God, I nailed that. That's so awesome. I can't wait to share it. But what I always share is the stuff at the bottom and it tricks you because it's the great language at the top that actually prompts you to have the even better thought at the bottom. And a lot of times the even better thought was a thought that somebody else in the room had in a totally different context and going around the room sharing about what did you learn or what was best. All of a sudden you go, oh, why didn't I think of that? But then you do get to think about it. Yeah, And so there's incredible value being in the room. Oh, no, no. And I mean, that's my goal. You know, I don't know what you're going to write down on the sheet of paper. Okay. But I do know that if you spend about five or six minutes taking things out of your head and putting on, you'll think about what you just wrote down. And that's really the payoff for the exercise is what you thought about your thinking and how you thought about it. Steve, we've just gone through probably about six, seven weeks of discussion about the particular exercise, certainty, uncertainty. And I remember it really struck you. And in my experience with you, probably over 20 years, I had never seen you suddenly almost get a jolt and say, God, I just saw something about how I communicate. I just saw something, and this goes back forever. What was that like? What was that like when you? Well, I think the lead up to it is important, which is, you know, going back to that comment about your eyes only seeing, your ears only hear what you're looking for. I think walking into that first session, the lead up to that was I have found that I have become much more reflective about which conversations are easy and which ones are hard, and which ones have become more difficult and which ones have become easier. And I've noticed that some of my organized thinking, like with an impact filter, where it's just outlining the things that I'm going to call successful and the things that I'm outlining I'm trying to accomplish without addressing all of the uncertainty was leading into a lot of 
projects which didn't get going because either the people that were tasked with it or the people I was trying to collaborate with saw all the uncertainty as reasons why I can't go forward. And then rather than either telling me about it and dealing with it, they either assumed, you know, well, there's a whole bunch of complexity he doesn't know about, so we're just going to table it. And I found a lot of projects stunted inside my organization that we started and got going, but never kept going, or they got going, but they never really were innovated upon. And I was really struggling until this workshop Mm -hmm. to figure out how to fix it. And so what I was doing was almost thinking, okay, what did I do wrong? Was it because we didn't have a follow through? Was it because there wasn't the operational diligence on that or because I didn't personally make sure that it got done? And in that moment, you showed the uncertainty category. I realized that was the key that would unlock more productive conversations. I was looking for it. And I just, you just gave, you know, you gave it to me. I was in the room when you had that epiphany and I just had the same thought now that I had when you did it there. And it's another tool that is underappreciated in strategic coach, but it's the four by four role tool. There's four basic areas. and, And at the top, it's efficiency and effectiveness. Like, you know, at the bottom, it's, what would make you a hero to me yeah. and what would piss me off or bother me? And what I found is if I did that sheet for myself, where I looked at my own role and I shared it with my management team, when I showed them that I actually knew the stuff about me that really does bother them. <laughs> for example, some of my front stage activity. Wait, Howard, you have the whole list of things that bother them? <laughs> It was enough that it was like watching them relax and crack a smile where it was like, oh, he is aware of that, you know, where it's like, you know, the emperor has no clothes. A lot of times the sheer force of your personality or charisma or the fact that you're the one who writes the checks causes people to say, okay, okay, okay. But when you show them that you're actually looking 360 degrees and you're taking that into consideration, it gives them the permission to relax and think, oh, well, maybe it is possible. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to bring the four C's and thanks for reminding me because I mean, the four by four, I haven't done it for a while. But the thing that I'm noticing, so I, you know, I introduced the certainty, uncertainty, focus, and then I use a particular project of mine, okay? That was the first time it had been talked about in Strategic Coach is when I put the idea into the possibility and uncertainty and uncertainty. This is two and a half months ago now, two and a half months ago since I wrote that. And it's about 80% completed and I haven't done a thing on it. All I had to do is give that vision out to my team. And Kathy Davis said, you know, you had me at hello on this. She said, absolutely, we do this. And then she just organized everybody. She's talked to the coaches about it. She's talked to the salespeople about it. She says, let's move forward on this. It's really great. And I didn't have to do a thing. I mean, when I create new tools now, like I make reference always to who, not how, and this is a way of discovering it. But what I've discovered is that it just remarkably cuts down on the amount of work that you have to do. So... I have my own framework that I use for figuring out how technology is going to get adopted. I won't take you through the whole framework, but in a sense, the first stage is about so what, who cares? If it doesn't help you do what you already do, you don't have the time or energy. It'll never get to stage two if it doesn't at least make stage one. Stage two 
is about what's next. And it's instead of, does it help me do what I already do? It's what could I do or should I do? It's really the ceiling of complexity. And it's about how do you stop doing certain things that are less productive to make room for these new capabilities? And by the way, stage one is about defining the game you play and how you keep score, but it's typically your desk, your area. Stage two is really about your team expanding on the capabilities of your desk. It's the building blocks of your business. But stage three is people that you don't know using it to do what you intended. So in a sense, it's a product, a service, or an offering, but it's people that aren't you or aren't under your control trying to do something with it. And a lot of your forms work there, but stage four is when it becomes a platform, when other people are using it for things that you didn't intend for it to be used for. And the best of your tools not only are used for what you originally intended it, for, but morph into all sorts of other stuff. And I saw an example of you using your own certainty uncertainty tool to give feedback to Ben Hardy on the book. And it was a way of giving him feedback on what you liked and what you thought might be better, or you weren't sure if you should change the format. And I was like, I know this is a great tool because I've personally used it three ways differently than you just did, but you just used it incredibly profitably for that. And it really hit home that this is a great, great way to measure the utility. Yeah. And the whole thing was, you know, Ben, first of all, you know, he's in his thirties and I'm 40 years older than him. But the first book he wrote was Who Not How, and Who Not How was a new concept. So he was close to the beginning of this concept, but he's writing about the gap and the gain. I said, this has got 28 years heritage. There's 20,000 people who totally get this idea. And I said, so we gave you a whole bunch of names. We gave you a whole bunch of testimonies. I said, this is your source of knowledge about this. And I said, the other thing is strategic coach is not about making average people into better people. I said, we got high achievers who are born goal setters. They're born achievers. It's just not making them happy. (laughs) It's about creating new possibilities. No, we're not teaching them how to achieve. These are achievers, you know? It's just that all the achievement isn't making them happy. It's making them unhappy. And he says, oh, wow. Because the whole self-improvement movement is trying to see if you can make a teddy bear come alive, you know? So you actually said something to me this morning that I thought was brilliant. And what you said is people don't drive themselves crazy with their goals. It's the deadline And then I had a thought around that. It's not just the deadline. It's also and the mistaken belief that they have to do it. And so as you start to use these tools, you're free to imagine what you want or what's possible because you no longer have to do it within this chunk or to do it yourself. It's about creating what you want to create. Well, let me do a little survey here to see if this is true. What I didn't realize before the COVID started last year and I've become so much more familiar with this, that factored into my thinking about the future was always what I call the traffic tax. That anything you wanted to do in the world in your future, there was a tax because of travel. I got 400 hours back this year, you know? And what it makes me do is that when I think about something in the future now, I don't have to factor in that I have to travel. 
or that they had to travel. So, oh no. So if you, yeah, when I think about like my unique ability, focus day time, right? So go back to the entrepreneurial time system, focus day, free day, and buffer day. I always thought when I'm in a conversation like this and you keep it short enough, it's always good. Good things happen in meetings like this. But how many of these could I have in a day? Because I would have to go somewhere or somebody would have to go somewhere. But now you can stack them. And, you know, you want 45 to 50 minute chunks with a break in between. Otherwise, you can't be fresh. But you can have more effective focus days than ever before because there's a new possibility. And not only that, the other people in the world no longer believe that they have to see it in person yep. to look at our supercomputers or see the PhDs sitting at their desk. Yeah, They've gotten comfortable saying this is good enough and it changed everything. Yeah, it did. And I wanted to get Steve because you got 380, 400, you know, business owners spread all over the world. But on Tuesday, I had a couple in from Mumbai, from India. Okay. And then I had an Australian in to that workshop. And I said, you know, there's somebody here who comes from Mississauga. Mississauga is the western suburb of Toronto where the airport is. So when you come into the airport, you're in Mississauga. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. You know what the travel time is to Mississauga? I said, it's three clicks. That's the travel time. Click, click, click. You know what the travel time to Mumbai, India is? Three clicks. Click, click, click. Mumbai is just as close as Mississauga. I said, I have to tell you, we're controlled by space and time, but when you just had a significant breach in the time continuum, you've changed the spatial dimension of your future. I said, it's gonna change the time sense of your future. But most people aren't looking at the lost opportunity cost and saying, and how can I fill that with things that are even more valuable? Well, the other thing is I didn't fill it back up. I said, I got that slack in my system. I said, you know, I mean, are we going to do workshops in Chicago in person? We are. We're tentatively planning for October that we're going to open back up. But I have to tell you, during that same quarter, we're going to have Zoom alternatives for people who don't want to do it. I actually thought about that when I saw the note from Babs about resuming in October about the blend of that, even asking the question of what I want to do or what, you know, each person wants to do. To touch on the point you just brought up, Dan, it was here before COVID to do what you just described. But what you didn't have was everybody agreeing or needing to live with the same kind of adoption of the technology to make that happen. We've been a distributed workforce for you know, 15, 17 years, we've used Zoom and the predecessors of Zoom for years. But what you didn't have was everybody agreeing that it was as equal or superior way of getting together. And so you had to fly across the country. You had to go to that meeting downtown. You had to go to do those things because that's what people equated to really doing the work. And so the last 12 months, everyone's kind of been equalized as in terms of that kind of meeting. The question is, as we go back into the fall and into next year, what are the kinds of meetings and sessions they're okay to have on Zoom or any other video conferencing platform? And what's better as a result of, by the way, having those technologies and what is better in real time or in physical form? Like the symposium is a great annual event that works really well in person. Does it translate to a couple of days on Zoom? Maybe, maybe not. 
the workshops though really do. And so how do you blend it? I mean, for Startup Health, we've been a global community for, you know, since the beginning 10 years ago when we launched, it's become a lot easier now to look at virtual showcases instead of just in-person showcases, to look at our circles or our forums as, you know, indispensable versus, you know, because we can't meet in person. So I think it's a great transformation. I told my team, okay, let's say we do go back in October, but you won't really know what the truth of the matter is until the following October, because what I think is a lot of people are romanticizing in-person communication. And they're saying, boy, it just doesn't feel, you know, when the in-person, you wasted 80% of your time when you were doing in-person workshop. You're suddenly going to get really kind of impatient with how much time people waste when they have the advantage of in-person, you know. I mean, it's like people, boy, the Second World War was a wonderful time. We were so close together. Are you kidding? It was the worst disaster in human history, you know. But people romanticize, oh, yeah, we really appreciate it. We really loved each other. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. (laughs) You created a form called Zooming Ahead. And It doesn't have to be about Zoom, even though you made it about Zoom. What you're really saying is, hey, you've got this new capability. What are you proud that you're already doing well? What do you think you're going to do better? And then what do you think it's going to make possible? That's a great framework for looking at any technology or system. But the real key there is not to use Zoom for what you used to think it was used for. It's to imagine how does it become a competitive advantage? How does it create a lever that lets you do more, more efficiently, more effectively, or with more certainty? And an example would be, think how much more energy there is having a conversation like this where I can see you and I can see you and we're talking versus if we would have tried to do this just by talking into a camera. Now you can repurpose this video or the audio snippets or take a 30 second piece and put it on a picture and use it in social media. But there's so many ways to repurpose this where all of a sudden you can create courses using Zoom. Mm -hmm. You can run a trial workshop and then use some of that to create content for a blog post or some other content. But you're doing the same thing and you're transforming the experience And it's almost like alchemy, where you're taking a base material and you're making it more valuable. And the only reason it's happening is because you intend for it to happen and you're intentionally thinking, and then what? Well, and the other thing is that Steve pointed out the big difference. I would have loved to use Zoom in this way five years ago, but there was nobody at the other end. There was no acceptance. There was no agreement. Actually, it was frowned upon. You know, it would be looked at as, wait, wait, we can't meet in person. We're, it's almost like, then we're going to meet on Zoom versus yeah. the other way around. Then I think it's going to be the other yeah, way around. Yeah, and I, I say, you know, one telephone really doesn't have much value. You got to have somebody at yeah. the other end. You know, it's Metcalf, one of the early pioneers in Silicon Valley. They were saying, well, how do you evaluate one of these new networks? And he said, well you know, electronic network where, you know, people have the same technology and they're probably kind of similarly motivated to use the technology. He said, you know, it's probably the number of connected users squared. That's the economic value of the network. So, you know, if you take Zoom, it's 500 million squared. That's a big number. 
that's a big number. And that's why they're now worth more than the airline companies. Yeah, yeah. And the reason is because it's the exponential impact of having this connection. And I do feel, you know, I do feel that all of our clients on Zoom are thinking better. I think they're deciding faster. I think that they're communicating better than they were in the in-person on a whole. But my sense is that that's partially a fact that the people who weren't really in it for growth purposes didn't come. And all the people who showed up were growth entrepreneurs. But another piece of it is, is that you think about the process enough that you have another Zoom tool where you thought about what made our Zoom meetings better and you figured out the recipe for success. And for any of the clients who are out there, go look at that and use those same things in your own business because it's almost one for one useful. Mm -hmm. But you just have to think about what it made possible and what you ought to do and what are the minimum standards, the absolute yeses and the absolute noes. But if the answer is right there, just do it. Yeah. You know, and as far as being impersonal, it's just the opposite. We have, you know, team members and they're operating from their homes. Everybody over a period of the first two months of COVID, they kind of arranged that what people are seeing behind me looks good. One of our team members, her name's Megan. It's really, really interesting because she's got a full bar right behind her. So I said, is that Jameson? Uh, Megan, is that, uh, did you get a new bottle of Jameson? Oh, she said, yeah, yeah, it's really good. So every time she comes on, we talk about her bar. Well, when she's sitting in a conference room, I'm not talking about that. You're bringing up one of the serendipitous things that is a byproduct of these Zoom calls, which is getting to see people in their family life or their home. And whether it's what you just described with the bar behind you, a kid or a child walking in the room. I watched at the beginning of this podcast, Babs came in and put something down. Yeah, There's a human element to this, which makes everybody a mother, father, sister, brother, child, or whatever. And it really brings, I think, an authenticity oh, yeah. to the conversations and in a very good way. I mean, like, I get on calls with people that would have been in suits in boardrooms pre-COVID that are in a workout suit and just got back from a hike or the dog jumps up on their lap and they're talking to us. And so I happen to think in many ways it's driving towards a much more authentic relationship, oh, yeah. even in the business world oh, yeah. where people's guard is just different. It is what it is. This is where I live. Take it good or bad. This is who I live with. This is what I'm doing during my day. Unapologetically, even unshowered with a baseball hat on coming out of a workout in a good way. I totally agree with you. And I wonder if organizations where politics is really based on what space you occupy you know, I mean, think your parking space, the floor you're on, the corner office that you have, the size of your office, in the boardroom, who sits at the top of the table. If you take away all those spatially based distinctions, do they feel that's a good thing or a bad thing? And I think a lot of corporations, this has been a disaster. Yeah. Well, if you didn't have the no office solution, which again, you seeded 20 years ago that I adopted right away and haven't had an office since, the notion of no place to go that defines work versus not work has been a breakthrough for a lot of people, but a lot of people aren't comfortable with it. Yeah. So I think from being both an entrepreneur, but also in coach and some of the kind of framework around 
not having an office you're tethered to, although Howard's sitting in his office, he's tethered to. Yeah, Yeah, but I actually, I like coming here and I also like working from home. They're different. Our team is still primarily remote, Mm -hmm. but I'm actually looking forward to having people come in. We're not going to go back to everybody being here all the time, but I do want them to be here sometimes because there's a serendipity of walking, you know, into the kitchen and seeing people and being able to talk randomly about this, that, or the other, both are good. And it's not either or, it's both and. Yeah, well, we established that everybody has to be in the office on workshop days. On workshop days, everybody has to be there. And they said, well, why the clients don't see us? I said, because the rule is gonna be that everybody has to be in the office on workshop days. But why? Uh, Because that's the rule. (laughs) And the thing is that, The movement from in-person to people working at home is a much easier move than people getting used to working at home and then moving back to the office. People are going to find this five times more difficult than the first move. Yeah, we're actually trying to figure out right now, how do we incent people? How do we make it fun? And we're even starting where you're not supposed to come to the office for the whole day. But I want to get people to not resist coming back. Again, we're not going to make them come back all the time, but I want the both and. Well, the thing is, I worked it out. I just asked some questions and on average, they got 300 hours back. This is across 120 people. They each got 300 hours back. That was their time. And they saved about $3,000 in terms of travel. You know, they have parking, they have gas and everything else. And I said, you know, This was a bonus year. You just had a bonus year. Anyway, but it's interesting. It's the most interesting year of my life. I've got 76 of them. I said, hands down, you know, same year the Soviets are threatening nuclear attack and we have a polio epidemic. I said, that was nothing compared to this one. This was a great one. (laughs) Well, it was. And a lot of the technologies we were just talking about enabled a very different output of the last 12 months. So let's do a wrap up. Biggest insights from today's session, Dan and Howard. Well, you know, this is a combo to be repeated in the future. You know, I was kind of tickled when I saw who the partnership (laughs) was on today. I said, this is going to be really, really interesting. You know, it's really interesting because You share so much from a historical standpoint, but what you share most of is that you're entrepreneurs and you have a bigger future. Yeah, and thank you for that. (laughs) Howard, biggest insights from today? I really think the biggest insight that I have is how much energy I get from having conversations like that and the alchemy that you then take that energy and that thought process and then think back to the business and what's possible. And it simply makes things better. And we didn't have to talk about anything specifically about the business. But for example, I reminded myself about the four by four, and I'm going to redo it for all my direct reports, but I'm also going to redo it for me because me after COVID is different than me before COVID. And a man can't bathe in the Ganges twice because the man's not the same and the river's not the same. You're going to get different insights. There's a lot of really great tools, but the only reason to do the tools is to have better conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to do an insight and then a shout out. So I'll start with the shout out to our grandmothers who were the entrepreneurs when it comes to family of something truly unique, Dan, about both Howard's grandmother and my grandmother, who, you know, were both 
you know, put into an orphanage at a very young age and never lost a sisterly bond all the way through to the end of their life, but more importantly, spawned two families from both of them that are incredibly close, not just as each of their families, but both of our families are still very close. And I think it's really a tribute now, a hundred years later, to the kind of mindset that both of those women had. And I'm grateful that I get to experience both the personal and the business side with Howard during Coach Every Quarter. But this conversation was really great. I enjoyed the conversation in particular about who we are to different people and the notion of whether that be team or whether that be family was really, really insightful. So I appreciate the conversation with both of you today. Thank you. It's a great treat for me. I mean, conversation and discussion that is open-ended is just the greatest pleasure that I have. And, you know, the other thing is that we have longevity of ourselves. I mean, how many organizational associations last or are fully participated in and fully focused on for over 20 years. We're all in our third decade now. Yeah. So I said that productive output's important. And it's like, how much do you value your notes and how often do you reference it? But Stephen is a high achiever with high standards. So am I. There's almost nothing that I can think of that I still do from 30 years ago that I still want to do because if you're not growing, you're dying. And so if it was something that I was doing 30 years ago, how could it still be useful? But this is still the most useful thing that I do to squeeze my mental muscles and come up with new capabilities. And it really is all about new capabilities and new thoughts. And frankly, that's what you should be congratulated for is that it's timeless. It's just as useful now as it was then. And I suspect it'll be just as useful in 25 years. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. 